Infections, hospitalizations, and deaths are rising as BA5 spreads across the country. A new CDC study found that rates of infection with antibiotic-resistant bacteria have skyrocketed during the pandemic. And last Saturday, 988 became the new nationwide mental health crisis hotline number. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. If you're like me, the first thing that you do every morning is look at your phone. Look, I know it's like the worst thing you can do, but it's 2022 and I'm holding it anyway. After all, my phone is my alarm clock. It's also my weather report, my newspaper, the Quran I read every morning, and my meditation app. And when it comes to my health, my phone is my personal trainer, my activity tracker, and my calorie counter. I use it to book medical appointments and to check any labs when they come back. We use one machine to do nearly everything. And that's by design by all of the folks making money off of that machine. But when that becomes the case, when one machine does almost everything for you, that machine gets really personal. You start to think that it's just you and your phone. But that phone is designed to make you forget that every single one of those apps, every single one, is constantly sending information back to a stream of servers. My meditation app, my weather app, my calorie counter, each collects, stores, and sells my data. And it does it to you too. In fact, you don't even have to be using it for it to collect, store, and exchange your information. After all, all those services, they may feel free, but no, they're not free. The ones that I don't pay for, like Facebook or Google, they're still making money off me. They're just doing it by either selling my data or using it to push me advertising for things I probably don't need. Think about this. How often have you had a conversation with someone about a very specific product only to see advertisements for that exact same product pushed to you across a whole bunch of different services? It's not that your phone is listening. It's that apps are collecting so much information on you that they can identify what it is you may be interested in in the first place and therefore what you're probably talking about. It's as uncanny as it is terrifying. But what happens when it's not just selling you underwear or headphones? What happens when the intimate details you punch in your phone have to do with your health? What happens when the companies trying to monetize you through your phone collect that information too? And what happens when that information can be used against you, a loved one, or a provider in a court of law? Because that's the nightmare scenario millions of people are currently facing since the fall of Roe. When I interviewed law professor and co-host of Crooked Media's Strict Scrutiny, Kate Shaw, a few weeks back, I asked her specifically about whether or not people should consider deleting period tracking apps or be careful about what they plug into search engines for fear that the information could be subpoenaed and used in a prosecution. Here's what she had to say. I think that these kind of warnings that we have seen circulating on social media in the last few days that people should delete those apps are probably right, actually. So I think that mm. even if you're not, even if we're not, you know, actually worried about some kind of panopticon-style surveillance state actually beginning immediately in the wake of the fall of Roe to track the kind of fertility and activities of all, you know, women and childbearing uh, capable people in the United States. I still think that having this kind of, you know, personal medical information um, in the hands of a third party and also stored, you know, on your own device potentially, you know, vulnerable to, say, a subpoena request from a DA who's investigating an allegation of an abortion in violation of state law. Um, wow. I, I, I would be concerned about those records being um, available to potential subpoenas. And so I think they're probably, I think that those, those warnings are probably well-founded. That is bone-chilling. 
But all of this should remind us that the, quote, private information we share into our phones is actually being shared all the time, sometimes in ways it's explicitly not supposed to be. Last month, Todd Feathers and Simon Fondry-Tietler published a series of articles exposing the way that Facebook has been collecting and storing medical information just like that. That company was inadvertently tracking and importing protected health information off of hospital websites. The story opened up new questions about how much data is too much for Facebook to own. What role does HIPAA have in a world where websites are automatically sharing information? And so much more. And while all of that is bad enough on its own, it's also raised a number of troubling implications about our new post-row healthscape. I invited Todd and Simon to share their story and implications with us today. Here's our conversation. All right, can you introduce yourselves for the tape? I'm Todd Feathers. I'm an enterprise reporter with The Markup. Um, and I'm Simon Fondry Teitler. I'm the infrastructure engineer at The Markup. Awesome. I really appreciate you all joining us today. Th- this is really one of those topics that sits at the cusp of a whole set of anxieties particularly right now, around the role of the internet in our lives and some of the things that we take for granted around how the backup is set up, around the way that the Supreme Court has politicized healthcare uh, with its recent decision to end uh, the right to choose, and um, the ways that sometimes uh, what we do online can be weaponized against us. So I want to start um, from the top uh, just with a question about the law that everyone thinks on when we think about healthcare data privacy, which is HIPAA. What is HIPAA? Yeah, so so HIPAA stands for the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. Um, and, and a lot of people, including myself until pretty recently, you know, think of HIPAA mainly as a, as a privacy law that, that protects our, our medical privacy and information. But it, its original intention back when it was you know, signed and enacted in 1996 was really to kind of govern and make possible the, the transfer of medical information between insurers and providers and kind of entities like that. Um, you know, the, the privacy rules didn't go into effect until 2003, um, you know, a number of years after the, the law was actually enacted. And, and Facebook itself wasn't founded until 2004. And so that kind of gives you a sense of how old the framework of this law is. Um, you know, even though it's been updated, you know, it, it certainly wasn't built for a world with Facebooks and with that kind of business model and technology. And there, there are three prongs, I think, to, three main prongs to help out with the privacy aspect in terms of controlling uh, what, what a health system or doctor or some or health insurance company can do with the information they receive, who they can share it with. It also allows uh, for, uh, as Todd was talking about, uh, transferring data between health systems and allowing patients to get their data out of one health system in order to move it to a different health system or doctor. Um, and the third uh, prong is around what what marketing a uh, a covered entity uh, under HIPAA is allowed to do. Um, they can't necessarily just take your data and send you ads for whatever the hell uh, they want to. It limits, to some extent, the scope uh, to which they can market. You know, it's interesting because HIPAA in popular culture uh, is sort of seen as this be-all, end-all shield uh, around health data privacy, <laughs> you know, the point where you have not too impressively bright Republican uh, Congress people talking about how HIPAA prevents them from sharing publicly their own uh, vaccination status, which is decidedly not true. But you know what your reporting demonstrates is that HIPAA, even for those three prongs that uh, that you talked about, uh, Simon, that HIPAA's got some really big holes in it, and a lot of this tends to stem from the fact that it's a pretty old law, and a lot about the internet has changed since that law went into to effect. Can you can you walk through some of the ways? 
that um, you know HIPAA might not have foreseen data movement and how that may uh, be opening up some of the holes you reported on? I I don't know whether that's true or not. I'm not sure that the issue here is that HIPAA isn't ready for this sort of thing, like hasn't been updated long enough and like the the internet, it doesn't apply to the internet. There, there are tons of digital healthcare facets that it does it does apply to and it does regulate and HHS has uh, and OCR gone after companies uh, for violating. So I don't I don't actually know what the issue is. I don't know if it's a clarity issue. I don't know if it's an enforcement issue. I don't know if this stuff isn't covered. Uh, and I don't know necessarily what the state of this privacy stuff was before the internet. Um, and so I, I guess from my perspective, it's a little bit hard to say um, exactly why why this stuff is happening. Yeah, if I could just add on to that, you know, I totally agree with Simon, you know, the experts that we talked to, including some who were former regulators with, you know, Health and Human Services and the office, you know, within Health and Human Services that enforces HIPAA, you know, told us that, you know, this is the kind of behavior that we documented, the collection of this data by Facebook from hospital websites is most likely a HIPAA violation. I think, you know, where some of the bottleneck is, according to these people, is the ability to enforce these kinds of potential violations and to investigate them. The office within HHS that does this is, you know, not um, you know, overflowing with resources and staff from what we were told. And you know, these kinds of investigations, they're, they're hard, they're time consuming. It took a lot of work for us to do this. And, you know, we, we weren't processing hundreds of other, you know, complaints of various kinds at the same time. So how is this exactly happening? What, what exactly is going on here? So the root of what's happening here is that the hospital systems that we looked at, uh, so there's there's two things that we looked at. Uh, uh, one of them is hospital systems that have added uh, this script uh, called the Metapixel to their website. Uh, and so this this pulls in some, when you, when you browse the website, it pulls in some code from Facebook and it runs that in your browser. And uh, one of the things, and then this code is, is used for uh, a number of different things. Uh, the main use seems to be uh, tracking how well the ads that you've uh, placed on Facebook are doing. So if you uh, want, if you you're advertising to people and you want to know, do they click on my ad? And then when they've clicked on my ad, sort of what do they do on my website? Um, it also helps attribute like. Uh, sort of linking the people that click on the ad to the people on the website. There's some other sort of like what are answering what what are people that are browsing this website doing. Uh, and so uh, the script will collect uh, data on page views and other other sorts of metrics. Uh, send that back to Facebook, and then Facebook provides a window into this uh, to to the site owner. Um, so hospitals have been adding this uh, presumably to track like they advertise on Facebook. Um, that's, a, that's a thing that a lot of hospitals do. Uh, and so they added the script. Um, but there, there are other, like, there are things that happen on hospital websites that are somewhat sensitive. Um, one of them we realized was booking appointments, right? You go, you search for a doctor uh, on the hospital website. Uh, it'll have a button somewhere that says uh, book appointment. Uh, you click on that, you answer some information. Uh, and now you have an appointment with the doctor at some time and some date. What this the script was doing on these sorts of sites was uh, it 
when when the user clicked that button to schedule an appointment, uh, the Facebook script was detecting this button click and was sending uh, an event back to Facebook saying, hey, this user uh, at this IP address, uh, in some cases with sort of cookies identifying what what account uh, was logged into Facebook, said this user has clicked on this, this button on this doctor's website to schedule an appointment. The other thing that we found, and so we found that in I should say, uh, we checked the top 100 hospitals on Newsweek, and we found 33 of them doing that. The other thing that we found was uh, there's a sort of patient electronic health record system that allows patients at these hospitals to log in, see things related to their care. Um, There's a few big names in this. The biggest is Epic with uh, a product called MyChart that uh, many, many, many uh, large hospitals are running. And we found that seven uh, hospital systems had um, added this same Metapixel script to their inside their EHR, and it was sending things that they were clicking on um, inside this EHR to Facebook. And so we were seeing things like doctor's appointments, times, um, but also uh, medications, things like that, like sort of whatever whatever was in this uh, portal that the patients. Uh, could click on and that Facebook thought was sort of like a button, uh, it would send the text of uh, back over to Facebook. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that was the perfect explanation as you know, kind of a, a non-technical person. The, the way that I had to kind of conceptualize it was that the Metapixel creates basically a receipt of your activity on a website. And so when it's a hospital website and you're booking a doctor's appointment, it, you know, gathers the information of what you fill into various forms and, and click on, and it doesn't know what that is, but it, it collects it anyway and sends it to Facebook. And when you're inside your MyChart or whatever the other EHR portal is, there's a, a lot more sensitive information there. And as you navigate through it, you're potentially, um, not that the fault is on you, but you know, you're potentially exposing that information um, because this pixel is there collecting everything you click on. So how did you discover that this was happening? Uh, so we have a partnership right now with Mozilla, uh, and they are the nonprofit that makes the Firefox browser. Uh, and they have a project called Rally. Uh, and Rally allows the regular users of Firefox uh, to install an add-on on their browser. And uh, it's, uh, I think, just Firefox right now, or it's Firefox right now, plus I think we were the only one on Chrome. Um, but there are other there are other research institutions participating, uh, and the user can install this uh, plugin. They can uh, look through the list of uh, various uh, uh, studies that are ongoing, and they can say yes, I want to join this one. And it allows them to sort of donate their browsing data or information about their browsing don- data to Mozilla, and then Mozilla, in a very secure environment. Um, allows various the institutions uh, to access the data associated with their study. Uh, so we actually just finished up data collection uh, for a study that was uh, users were opting into allowing us to uh, see what data uh, on their browser was being sent to Facebook. It, it sort of it looked it was specifically targeting this script called the Metapixel, and it was looking at all the network traffic going to Facebook associated with it and including information about sort of what, what site this was from. Uh, and in looking through that, uh, initially we found uh, a couple of, I mean, uh, looking even just through the domains that were there, I saw mychart.something, 
com, and I was like, well, that's that's not good. And then you could see in that in that bit of data that was being sent, someone's name and uh, the uh, time and date of their appointment uh, with a doctor. I think they had clicked on like the little message center inside my chart, uh, and that information had gotten sent. And at that point, we're like, well, that that seems like a problem. And uh, started looking into this uh, some more. We found a few different places through that. And then as we were looking for this, uh, we were also looking more generally at what these hospital websites, uh, what sorts of data they were sending to Facebook. Um, and we realized that this was also happening on the scheduling pages. This We were using their sort of built-in tools to uh, Firefox and Chrome that allow you to see uh, what information is being sent to various places as you're browsing. Uh, and so we were using that uh, to, to investigate this. I think the, re- the really cool aspect of this Mozilla Rally, um, you know, add-on and feature is that it gives, you know, tech reporters like us a really kind of unprecedented way to um, in- investigate data collection. Um, you know, so that's something that we couldn't really do before. You know, if, if we had just, you know, happened on our own to have the idea to check these hospital websites and perform the manual tests that we did, we could have shown um, you know, some of what we were able to in the article about the kind of information collected, but we wouldn't have been able to, you know, show that real patient information was being collected from inside these password protected pages. And, you know, for, for me as a person who has used uh, my chart and, and been to hospitals, that was, you know, re- really compelling for me. Mm. So did Meta or Facebook know that their pixel was doing this and did they take any effort to try and fix it? (laughs) So Facebook did not respond to the detailed questions we sent for the story, but they they did provide a a statement and a little bit of information. And so I I guess the the brief answer to your question is yes, Facebook is aware that the Metapixel and other tools like it that, that track folks on the internet and through apps sometimes collect sensitive health information. And um, Facebook's been aware of this for several years. The Wall Street Journal did a big investigation a couple of years ago um, about health information sent to Facebook from apps. That sparked an investigation by the New York State Department of Financial Services, which found that Facebook was not doing a good job of um, making sure that that sensitive health information wasn't then being you know, put into the same databases it uses to target ads. And as part of that New York State investigation, Facebook built this machine learning system that was supposed to filter all incoming information from the Metapixel and similar tools um, and and block any sensitive health information from being added to this advertising database and and this user profiling um, kinds of databases. But um, Facebook itself admitted to the New York State investigators that, you know, at least as of February 2021, that machine learning filtering system was not completely accurate, um, that it was, you know, generating tens of millions, I think it was, you know, flags every day for, you know, sensitive health information that should be blocked. But that was still only like this microscopic percent of the overall interactions Facebook was collecting from health apps, which gives you a kind of sense of, you know, the scope of this problem. And you can kind of imagine even without being a machine learning expert, how hard it would be to, you know, filter out and block every kind of information that could potentially be, you know, sensitive health information in a particular context.
You know, what's so scary about this is that from a user experience, you have no sense that the fact that you've been on Facebook and then will go, you know, you get an email from your MyChart to go log in to, to take a look at the results of a lab or something. You have no sense that in effect, Facebook is still tracking you into that website and then collecting that third-party information that goes into who knows where to be seen by who knows whom. That, that's, a, that's a pretty scary thing. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, the liability, particularly given HIPAA, actually sits with the hospitals. So I'm wondering, you know, what effort hospitals have taken to try and address the situation. Yeah, well, I, during the reporting process, we we reached out to to every hospital um, that, that we had kind of tested. So the you know, Newsweek's hundred top hospitals in the U.S., as well as hospitals whose my charts, um, you know, were sending patient information that we found through these, you know, Mozilla Rally users. All told, this ended up being around 110 hospitals and health systems, I think. Of those, I think about, you know, a a dozen at the time of publication, a little less than that, you know, removed the pixel from their website or from their their MyChart portal after we reached out and shared our evidence. Um, More removed it after the article published. I haven't actually, you know, gone back and looked at the full list very recently, so I don't know where it stands now. But but quite a few hospitals have removed this. Um, in some cases, uh, I think in most cases, the language has been something like, you know, we've removed this while we investigate further. Um, nobody's saying, oh, crap, we shouldn't have done this at all. This is a huge mistake, and <laughs> various legal reasons why they might not be saying that. Um, but other, you know, hospitals and health systems have defended this and said that, you know, listen, when you book, you know, click the button to book a doctor's appointment on our website, um, that's not protected health information. You know, you might not follow through and actually confirm that appointment, or you might be booking it for a friend or a, you know, a relative, and so it's not your PHI. And yeah, I, I'm not a legal expert, and I, I won't argue, um, you know, whether or not that's correct. Um, but, but that's what we heard from hospitals. Hmm. That sounds a little dubious. I, I'm trying to think back to my um, hospital-provided HIPAA training, and I, I don't think they would have thought that way, uh, given what they say in the training. Uh, it seems to me like a corporate attempt to minimize the impact here. I want to just uh, switch tack, because, of course, the implications of these kinds of data transfers have gotten uh, a lot more severe after the fall of Roe, considering the fact that abortion service providers they can be litigated against and held accountable you know, for, for, for actual crimes in states where abortion has been banned. And it's plausible that the kind of information that people are collecting or tracking on the internet, just like a MyChart through an app or, or something else, could be leveraged in those kinds of cases. And I, I was hoping that you, you could reflect on the possibility for uh, law enforcement to be harvesting this kind of information and then what it means for people who uh, transact uh, increasingly their health transactions on the internet or via the internet, via apps, et cetera. Um, what are the implications of this overall? Yes, I, I think that's actually a, a kind of tricky subject and a, a hard line to to, to walk there. I, I've spoken to a couple um, reproductive you know, law experts on this, in particular, Cynthia Conti-Cook from the Ford Foundation. And you know what, what she said is that you don't want to say that there is no threat of, of that happening, of you know, law enforcement 
subpoenaing in mass Facebook for for some kind of information because you know Roe was just overturned. States are passing laws. We don't know how prosecutors are going to proceed in the future. So the, it's not that there's there's no risk of that happening, but that in fact there are actually a lot easier ways for prosecutors to get information about you know providers who who provide abortions and, and patients who receive them. You can see somebody's phone and, and look through it. Um, you know, in the case of trying to find out whether a doctor you know provides abortions, you, you don't have to subpoena Facebook. You can you can Google it. You, you can find other ways to do that. So. The most acute risk from this kind of data collection, according to the experts we've spoken to, is really not this kind of, you know, mass, you know, subpoenas and, and warrants from law enforcement. It's perhaps the kind of thing that um, Grace Oldham and our, our colleagues at Reveal found when they conducted a, a very similar investigation to ours, a joint investigation with the markup, looking at the data that the Metapixel collected from people who visited crisis pregnancy centers. Mm. And, and these are um, organizations that, that, that don't you know, provide abortions, and I think in most, if not many cases, um, you know, the, the purpose of them is to encourage people not to have abortions. And, you know, Grayson and Reveal found that a lot of this information, a lot of these crisis pregnancy centers had metapixels on their sites, They're sending this information to Facebook, which potentially enables crisis pregnancy centers or other organizations to target advertisements to people who are pregnant and thinking about abortions or, or thinking about what to do next and, you know, send misinformation or, you know, just, you know, bombard them with messaging that encourages them to, to keep their pregnancy. Um, that, that seems to be the, the, the kind of most acute fear that, that's been conveyed to us. As you reflect on, on, on your work and what you've discovered, how should consumers be thinking about the choices that they make about how they transact their health information on the internet? I don't, I don't know if it's like, it's such a hard question, right? Like it's hard to sort of conceptualize the risks here. And it's all sort of very, very technical and hard to understand exactly what's going on. And so I, I mean, it's sad, but sort of leaving this to consumers is, I don't, I don't know if there's a good answer here. I don't have any particularly good advice, right? Like um, the answer I don't think is like, don't use the internet at all for any health stuff, like only call your doctor and only go in person because that's, that's a lot more work. And uh, there's, there's downsides to that as well. Uh, And so I'm not sure what the individual actions here are uh, that, that could be helpful. I think it's, this might only be changed via via policy uh, changes. Yeah, I, I would totally agree with that. I mean, there there are things that you as an individual can do to you know decrease the amount that you're tracked on the internet. You can use privacy extensions. You know, I, I personally use a, a browser that that doesn't allow you know cookies and other kinds of tracking. But I would agree with Sam that this is you know not something that individuals are going to solve by simply you know, doing that, um, it's going to require, you know, systems and institutions to kind of change their practices. So, you know, I, I, um, considering that it's very difficult, right. Not, not to live on the internet in, in 2022, uh, and that, you know, clicking the link from your email to go check your labs is, is the obvious next thing to do. You know, I, I guess it's, it's worth asking what kind of pressure should we be putting on our hospitals and even on big tech to get them to take this seriously. Cause it's frustrating to me that, you know, you, you know that there's a lot happening behind the scenes in every internet transaction that you engage with, but you trust it anyway. And what your reporting suggests is that actually it's less trustworthy 
than you thought it was. And you know, as as I think about what I want to do or what I want from my internet experience, who are the institutions that that we really can hold accountable? Do we go and, and talk to our hospitals and say, listen, if you're transacting and using my information to collect information about whether or not I click on your Facebook ad and it's leaking my health information, you know, I'm going to make different decisions about where I go? Or is it the kind of thing where we just lump it into you know the broader set of grievances that we all ought to hold um, uh, against Facebook, Meta, Twitter, everyone else that has made uh, Internet 2.0 kind of a living hell. You know, one thing that, you know, experts and former regulators told us folks can do if they're, you know, concerned about this or they think that, you know, their medical privacy may have been violated is that they can file a HIPAA complaint with their hospital. I don't know exactly how that process works, and I, I couldn't promise what the result of that would be, if anything, but that's one avenue. I, I think we should probably also note that, you know, right now the U.S. doesn't have an overarching privacy law like the GDPR in Europe and, and like some other countries have. And so healthcare, because of HIPAA, is one of the few areas where there is actually some regulation um, and, and enforcement of data privacy. But there are states that are passing their own privacy laws, you know, almost every day, it seems like. There are some bills in Congress that, you know, seem to have legs in ways that previous iterations of them haven't. So I, I think there is movement on this, but you know, the, the devil is always is in the details and especially on stuff like this, where, you know, so moment, so much of the, you know, what's happening is actually invisible. Um, I, I wouldn't set any high expectations exactly for <laughs> The regulation is going to solve all of this soon. No, I mean, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna interpret uh, what you shared as let's 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 lump it into um, the broader set of grievances against big tech more generally. Uh, you know, one one of them is you're stealing my personal health information without me even knowing it, um, alongside everything else. You know, I, I think as I think about this and and you know what attracted me to to this story and why I think it's really critical that folks understand this is that. Um, when you don't, uh, when you don't think through all of the implications of what you're doing, these kinds of things tend to happen. And the problem with the internet is that you know it is it is somewhat beyond most of our technical comprehension. If you're not a software engineer and you don't actually understand what all those you know odd things that happen before you hit a website actually are, you, you kind of assume that you're just doing what you want to do without really appreciating everything that could be happening in the background. And when you're talking about things that you trust to be protected, uh, that implication becomes all the more dangerous. And so, you know, I, I think it's there's there's a world here where all of this should again just force us to step back and ask, well, how much of what we do do we actually want to do via the internet? I know it's onerous to you know pull out your phone and make a phone call instead of pull out your phone and go to a website, but maybe that's the the the, the better approach if you don't actually know what's happening on the back end. The second point, though, is that. Um, we need to demand a lot more oversight over what big tech companies are doing, particularly when it comes to, to things like this. And then the last point, which is a beat that we hit um, all the time on this show, uh, is that uh, in an effort to um, monetize sick people, right, our hospitals tend to be willing to do things that end up being fast and loose with things like our healthcare data, right? The entire point of putting the metapixel on your 
website is that you can advertise better on Facebook so that you can get more patients to choose your hospital, even though that now means that um, you've opened up a window where Facebook is siphoning off those people's health information. And so in the effort to, you know, to, to, to win at corporate healthcare, patients end up losing yet again. Uh, and this is, this is only, only one way um, of many. So I really appreciate you all uh, taking the time to, to join us to talk through this story, to share your reporting with us. That was Todd Feathers and Simon Fondry-Tietler from The Markup. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for having us. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. BA5 is spreading rapidly across the country. Cases jumped 17%, hospitalizations 19%, and deaths 10% over the past two weeks. That jump has been driven by the leaps that the virus has taken in both transmissibility and immune evasion. Indeed, BA5 is up to four times as resistant against mRNA vaccines, and the Mayo Clinic has called it hyper-contagious. To that end, the administration is working to expand access to a fourth booster shot, currently only authorized for people 50 or older to all adults. I hate to break it to you, But the fall is only about six weeks away. Fall has brought with it COVID spikes every single year during the pandemic. And officials are trying desperately to get ahead of the current upswing. Remember, three months ago, the dominant variants were BA2 and BA2.12.1. Both of these were quickly overtaken by BA4 and BA5. So it's hard to say what COVID will look like three months from now. For their part, vaccine manufacturer Novavax is testing vaccines that specifically target BA4 and BA5, the results of which they'll plan to release in the late summer or early fall. Remember, Novavax's vaccine is a more traditional vaccine. Rather than using a piece of mRNA, which the body translates into viral proteins, Novavax introduces the proteins themselves so that our immune system can recognize them. The thinking is that it'll yield a more robust T-cell and therefore longer-lasting immune response. And a reminder that the full consequences, though, of the pandemic aren't limited to COVID itself, rates of antibiotic-resistant bacteria, or superbugs, have skyrocketed. They increased 15% between 2019 and 2020 alone. I want to offer a quick primer here on how antibiotic resistance develops. Imagine you treat a thousand bacteria with an antibiotic, but you kill only 999 of them. By definition, that last one is the most resistant to the antibiotic. So if you stop treatment before that last one dies, it doesn't have any other bacteria to compete with because you just killed the other 999. So it starts replicating unopposed, making a thousand new bacteria that are resistant to that antibiotic. COVID was a perfect storm. First, you had hospitals filled to the brink with extremely ill patients who required intubation, pick lines, and catheters, all of which introduced the ability for bugs to infect deeper tissues in the body. Second, early in the pandemic, when doctors didn't really quite know how to treat COVID, they were treating with mass-spectrum antibiotics that patients probably didn't need, given that COVID is a virus, not a bacteria. You also had limited PPE, so hospital personnel were often reusing PPE that could carry these superbugs between patients. But the other side of the problem, of course, is that drug manufacturers just don't focus on making advanced antibiotics because, well, they're not very lucrative. After all, if you're a drug maker, you want to make drugs that people use a lot, and these are made to be conserved. So we're losing the war against superbugs. It's key that we steward our antibiotics effectively. Don't use them unless we need them, and then use them fully if you do need them. And then we have to incentivize drug makers to do the research and development that has to go into making new ones. Finally, on Saturday, 988 became the country's new mental health crisis hotline number, replacing the old 11-digit suicide prevention hotline. Experts believe that the new number, because of how easy it is to remember, will increase overall use up to threefold. And that's really important. In fact, 12% of callers who are experiencing suicidal thoughts report that talking to someone prevented them from acting. Already, with the old 11-digit number, wait times were too high. And with the surge in call volume, there's a fear that there may not be enough support to staff the added volume 
which may leave people on hold in their time of greatest need. It's a reminder that even with massive increases in mental health funding post-COVID, we are so far from where we need to be. That's it for today. On our way out, do me a favor, please rate and review the show. I know it just seems like a little thing, but it goes a long way, especially if a lot of you do it. So please today, make sure you do that. Also, if you love the show, I hope you'll check out my Substack. It's called The Incision. You can find me at abdulalsayed.substack.com and don't forget to check out my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash abdulalsayed. Also, if you want to rep America Dissected, drop by the Crooked Store for some merch. We've got our logo mugs and t-shirts. Our dad caps are available on sale and our safe and effective tees are on sale for $20 off while supplies last. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Our associate producer is Tara Terpstra. Veronica Samanetti mixes and masters the show. Production support from Ari Schwartz, Ines Mata, and Ella Price. Our theme song is by Takao Sazawa and Alex Uguiera. And our executive producers are Sarah Geismer, Sandy Gerard, Michael Martinez, and me, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed, your host. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.